0: The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Let me encourage you now to open up your Bible. We're opening up to Genesis 26. Uh, Genesis 26, that's on page 20. Do turn with me in God's Word to Genesis 26. Uh, We are now uh, several weeks into our sermon series on this generations of grace, picking up uh, the next generations of the covenant line and the patriarchs. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, looking at the lives of Isaac and Jacob. Uh, And really, the good for us as Christian believers, when we look back into the Old Testament and pick up these historical narratives, is that the lives of these individuals are absolutely filled with wisdom and lessons that you and I need to continue to learn as we walk in the same ways that those generations were called to walk in. God said to those past generations, I am the Lord, follow me in obedience. And we, thousands of years separated from them, are still living in obedience to the same God and walking in His ways. So the lessons that we learn at looking at the lives of these aged saints are some that can teach us very important spiritual truths and wisdom. So that's why we undertake these studies. But more than just learning Lessons from the lives of certain individuals, we learn to trace the faithfulness of God across the generations so that we in our generation can remember that the God of our father and our mother or the God of our grandfather and grandmother is our faithful God in our generation. And we want to pass on to successive generations the call to believe in this one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, so that our children and our grandchildren and our children's children's children will continue to believe in the faith of the God of the covenant grace, this matters in every generation and we learn this lesson as we study the scriptures so as we find ourselves in genesis 26. just want to give you some background context for as we approach Genesis 26, so that we jump into the narrative in the middle of it. But what's happening is that Isaac is Abraham's son, and Isaac is living in the land of promise. But the land of promise is experiencing a famine. You can look back at Genesis 26 in verse one and see that detail. That in a, a, a climate, an arid climate, a desert climate, where farming is the primary occupation and herdsmanship, and you can cap keeping track of the cattle, that the famine would come upon them and drought with it and bring in massive implications. And so Isaac, the promised covenant son, has left the land of promise and he's gone to a place called Gerar, which is in the region of the Philistines. And there in the region of the Philistines, Isaac is going to experience life. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Experience life. Trials, temptations, sorrows and sufferings, ups and downs and difficulties. It's just life, right? You can identify with that. The things that happen, both positive and negative, and joys and sorrows, and trials and sufferings, and wonderful things and hard things, and life. Isaac is going to experience life in Gerar, and from him we can learn some very important truths, but most importantly learn the character of our faithful God. So let us pray together and then we'll read in Genesis 26. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and we pray now that You would send Your Spirit who dwells within us to illuminate our minds that we, by reading Your Word, might also be read by Your Word so that our consciences might be more closely tuned to the truth of the Scriptures that our wills might be more inclined toward obedience, and that our hearts might be more given over to love You, our faithful God. And so come now, Lord, and speak to us in Your Word, for Your people are ready to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be reading Genesis 26 at verse 6 and through verse 22. We're not going to be reading... Uh, The rest of 26, but starting at verse 6, Genesis 26, verse 6, hear the word of God. So Isaac settled in Gerar, and when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking, Lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might have easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. So Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. And he called its name Sitnah. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. So may He write its truth on our hearts today. Now lest you be tempted to think that uh, the, the travelings and travailings and traversings of an ancient man and his herds and wells has no relevance to you, As a Christian believer, I want to encourage you that this is actually full of relevant truth for us. Uh, But as we dive into it, you may actually be interested to know that those who approach the Bible, what we call with critical scholarship, that is to say, they approach the Bible with the presupposition that the Bible is not true. So we call those scholars liberal scholars that aim to disprove the teachings of the Bible. There are many critical scholars who approach Genesis 26 and say... This chapter is a duplication of chapter 20. Because what you have in Genesis 26 is Isaac, Abraham's son, doing the exact same things that Abraham did back in chapter 20. When in chapter 20, Abraham is among the Philistine people and tries to pass his wife Sarah off as his sister with a a, a great amount of deceit. And in the same way, here is Isaac now in Genesis 26 among the same people in the same land doing the exact same thing with his wife, Rebekah, saying that this is my sister rather than my wife. Now, why? And the motivation for Isaac seems to be, as we see from verse 7, this motivation to both protect Rebekah and himself. But the issue there is that Isaac is lying, isn't he? He's misrepresenting the truth. He is not telling the truth about Rebekah, his wife, whom he calls his sister. But the larger issue here is that Isaac is not trusting in the Lord to protect him. Rather than trusting in God, who had just recently promised him in Genesis 26, verse 4, I will multiply your offsprings as the stars of the heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. Isaac is convinced that where he is right now threatens to undo all of that and he believes that he has to lie in order to protect himself and his wife rather than trusting in God to protect and to provide for him. He resorts to deception when he says, This is my sister, And when we see all of this, we see Isaac being overtaken by the fear of man, forsaking trust in the Lord, and violating God's law. And we don't have to turn away from that. We don't have to hide ourselves from this reality but we should respond to those critical scholars who say it's a duplication. It can't be a real story because it's the exact same thing that happened to his father. So it might just be some sort of confusion with the telling of the story as a repetition. But we want to say it's not a, it's not a duplication as if both events didn't really happen. Both events really did happen, and Isaac really is a sinner just like his father, Abraham. So as we think about this and kind of come up for air from the Old Testament here for a minute. I think one of the things that you and I do when we approach the Bible, especially the Old Testament, these historical narratives and peoples and places and things, is that we expect people in the Bible to be heroes. We expect the characters that we interact with in the Bible to be some sort of spiritual superheroes. But, loved ones, there is only one hero in the Bible. It's Jesus. And everybody else needs to be rescued by him. There are no heroes, spiritually, apart from Jesus in the Scriptures. And so we want to qualify our approach to this text by saying we should not place a burden of expectation upon Isaac that we know for certain that we couldn't hold up ourselves. Isaac is not a perfect man, and neither are you a perfect man or woman. Isaac is no less a sinner than you and I. And even though Isaac is receiving covenant grace and blessing, even having direct words of revelation from God given to him, given these extraordinary spiritual promises, Isaac still doubts. Isaac still struggles to believe. Isaac still wonders if God is really trustworthy. So where there might be a temptation to approach the Scriptures and say, come on, Isaac, what's the matter with you? You should realize that we should look in the mirror spiritually and say to ourselves, I recognize Isaac in me in the ways that I also struggle to believe God's promises, in the ways that I struggle to walk in the pathways of obedience just like Isaac does. So the truth for the Christian believer as we approach this reality of Isaac Misleading and lying to the people of Gerar and lying to Abimelech the king in order to protect himself and his wife. Misleading and lying is actually the fact that unbelief is always something that threatens you as a Christian believer. Unbelief, not trusting God's promises, not trusting in His protection, not trusting in His Word. You can never come to a place as a Christian, just like Isaac could never come to a place as a patriarch of the faith where he could say, you know what? I don't need to trust God anymore. I don't need to believe God's word anymore. I don't need to lean upon God's promises anymore. We must all guard our hearts from this reality because, dear friend, there will never come a time when you don't have to just simply rely on Christ somewhat, but rely on Christ for everything. Isaac teaches us this lesson that you cannot say in the course of walking out Christian obedience, thinking to yourself, waking up one morning, and say, you know what? I think I got it from here. I don't think I need the Spirit's help anymore. I think I can take this thing across the finish line just fine on my own. Uh, No, you can't. No, you can't. And even the patriarch Isaac is never going to come to a place when he can stop trusting in God's grace and promises in his covenant to give him the protection he needs rather than thinking, I should manipulate these circumstances and lie and sin in order to protect myself. That's not the way. So what we observe actually in this text is even though Isaac is transgressing and even though Isaac is not trusting, what we find is that God mercifully protects Isaac and Rebekah by the conscience of a pagan king. Abimelech, who's king of the Philistines, and the pagan leader, actually protects Isaac. He observes them in private. You see that in verses 8 and 9. The details there that they're laughing together. They're having private conversation. They're spending time together privately. And Abimelech sees that and says, You're, that's not your sister. That's your wife. How could you lie to us in this way? Abimelech, a pagan Philistine, has more conscience about the integrity of Isaac's marriage than Isaac does. That's interesting, isn't it? Abimelech has not received direct verbal revelation from God. Isaac has. Abimelech, we could say it this way, he's a man who doesn't have a Bible. He's a man who doesn't know God's Word in the same way that Isaac does. And yet his conscience to respect Isaac's marriage and hold up the sanctity of marriage is stronger than even Isaac's. He knows that marriage is to be respected. It's a bad indication when society also loses this impulse that marriage ought to be respected. But how can we understand what's happening here? Abimelech is a man who has what the Apostle Paul describes according to Romans chapter 2, the light of nature or a conscience. Even though he does not believe in the God of the covenant, Even though he has not received direct verbal revelation from Yahweh, Isaac's God, Abimelech still has certain truths as a moral conscience written upon his soul in such a way that he knows that marriage is to be respected. Because Abimelech is made in the image of God, he has this conscience of God's law written on his heart, and he rebukes Isaac and corrects him. This Philistine unbeliever, at this point, has more integrity than the patriarch of the covenant. And God uses Abimelech to protect Isaac from himself. And sometimes, in God's purposes, He will use unchristian people, non-Christian people, unbelieving people, to correct the course of Christian people. When they, though unbelievers are more sensitive to the light of nature in the conscience that God has given them to say, that's probably not right for you to do that. And Isaac is an illustration of that to us, of being corrected by Abimelech, who is himself more submissive to the light of nature and the rights of conscience to say, that marriage should be honored. That marriage should be held with integrity rather than denied. So Abimelech says to Isaac, you should go away from us. You should depart from us. He issues this warning to all of his people. There in verse 11, So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife. See, Abimelech is not ashamed to identify the proper relationship there, and he protects Isaac, but he essentially says to him, Look, you've got to go out from us. And the reason why he has to go out from us is not just because Isaac has been misleading about his relationship to, to Rebekah, his wife, but also because of what we find in verses 12-16, through 16, that in the midst of Isaac's deceit and in the midst of Isaac's lying, God is still blessing Isaac. God is still pouring out blessings upon Isaac. You see that there in verse 14 especially, that Isaac, even though in the midst of a famine, is receiving a hundredfold. Start reading there at verse 12. It says, And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. In verse 14, Isaac had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. You might be thinking to yourself, why is it that God would bless Isaac this sinful person who's deceived about his relationship with his wife to the Abimelech to Abimelech the Philistine king? It just seems wrong that God would bless a sinner. And you shouldn't say that too quickly, but before looking in the mirror to realize that God is constantly blessing sinners. But he's specifically here blessing this man, Isaac, because God has given him covenant grace and promises. So Abimelech sends him away. There's not enough room for all of us here, Isaac. There's not enough room for you to graze your flocks here because there's already famine. And as he goes, he realizes that he's been inflicted in verse 15. The wells that Abraham's servants had dug to water his flocks, they've been filled in by the Philistines. So even though Isaac is being blessed by God, he is also experiencing the tensions of living in a fallen world. And here we have an opportunity to ask, okay, Isaac has just experienced a real struggle in terms of obedience living amongst the Philistines. What, he'll, what will he do now that he goes out from them into the valleys and fields of Gerar? He's moved out of the cities. He's moved out of the eyesights of so many people. Now he's out in the fields. What will he do now? What will this patriarch of the faith who struggled in the city do once he goes out into the fields? How will he respond? And what you have here is another opportunity to see growth in grace. Will Isaac grow? Will he grow to trust? Will he learn, like Abraham, to believe God? So he's out in the fields now in verses 17-22. through And notice what happens. This is Isaac and his rowdy neighbors, as it were. In verses 17-22, through Isaac continues to struggle with the Philistine herdsmen out in the valley where he is experiencing contentious neighbors. Maybe you know something about that. Contentious neighbors and the blessing of God at the same time. The Philistines have continued this pattern of verse 15, filling up the wells of Abraham that make it hard for Isaac to water the massive amount of animals that he has. So what does he do? In verse 17, Isaac goes out and redigs the wells. He doesn't seem to make a big deal out of it. He just goes out and redigs the wells. He knows where they are. He knows their names, which is an indication that he knows that they are the property of his family. They were Abraham's wells. Isaac is Abraham's son. These are Isaac's wells. He goes out, knows where they are, knows their names and redigs them. And then the Philistines come upon each and every one of them and says, no, 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 that's ours. Mine. Verse 20, Philistine herdsmen lay claim to the first well. And Isaac says, fine, you can have it. Its name is contention. He digs another well, and they do it again. Mine! He says, you can have it. It's called enmity. Until finally we see in verse 22, he moved there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over the third well, and so he called its name Rehoboth, saying, for now the Lord has made room for us. Notice that for all of Isaac's contentious neighbors, instead of rising up in opposition to them, he simply passes them by and goes forward to find another wellspring of water as a constant supply of life that in the midst of a famine, likely in the midst of a drought, Isaac still finds water, an indication of God's blessing in such a way that he says there at the end of verse 22, the Lord has made room for us. Isaac doesn't say, okay, finally we got away from those terrible neighbors. He says, no, 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 now the Lord's made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. So you pull back from this and start asking, what what is the point of this? What does this teach us? What kingdom principles are at play here? You know, there are many commentators of this text who actually say, Isaac has no backbone. Isaac should have stiffened up his back and said to those Philistines, to the hills with you, these belong to me. And he would have been within his rights to do that, actually, because they did belong to him. He could have insisted on his rights, and many people are critical of Isaac, and perhaps you're reading the text and thinking, yeah, something's wrong with Isaac. I would never let a neighbor encroach on my property. Maybe that's good and right, and you shouldn't. But do you remember one of Isaac's primary purposes of God blessing him was that so he could be a blessing to the other nations? One of the primary things that God promised Isaac is that by obedience to my covenant, Isaac, and by walking in my ways, I will use you to be a conduit and a channel of blessing other nations who don't know me. You know me. And by way of your obedience, I will bless other nations. Or to use the language of Paul in Romans twelve eighteen, Paul writes, If it is possible for you as a Christian, you should live at peace with all men. And Isaac, in Genesis 26, is something of a poster child of this moral teaching of the Christian faith. That if possible, so far as it depends on you, and sometimes we understand it doesn't always just depend upon us, but in so far as it depends upon you, Christian believer, you are called to live at peace with all men, even your contentious neighbors whether they live literally next door to you or they are metaphorically a neighbor in your life, you are called to live at peace with all men. So says the Puritan commentator Matthew Henry. He says, Christian religion teaches us to be neighborly and as much as we are able to live at peace with all men, as Paul says in Romans 12, 18. This is a challenge to us that we have an opportunity to demonstrate even today. And I want to be very explicit about this in something that you might not think is a very big deal, but to highlight why it actually does matter. You and I, as members and friends of this church, have the opportunity to be a blessing to our neighbors, especially this fall with these various events that we have planned, especially today with the Harvest Party. And you need to know that we intentionally, as a leadership of the church, send out two different kinds of invitations to the Harvest Party. One invitation says, please come and bring something to share. And another invitation says, please come. Why? You might say, which is a big deal, it's just an event, it's just an invitation. No. Those two cards say for members and friends, please come and bring a dish to share. And for those who are on the mailing list of BBS, who have no connection to the church, except maybe informally through that way, we just say, no obligation to you, just come. You could say as a member of this church, you know what, if I'm bringing something, they should too. And they shouldn't eat if they don't. You could say that and be a jerk. (laughs) Or you could say, I want to participate in the life of this congregation in such a way to be a conduit of blessing to the community in such a way perhaps That by the witness of hospitality and generosity, somebody perhaps could have their mind changed to say, you know what, those Christians aren't just a bunch of jerks. They're kind. They're gracious. They share. They welcome. And they say, come when you see somebody standing off to the side, sheepishly afraid to come to the table because they didn't bring something, you say, no, come stand with me and come in front of me and here's a plate and come and share and rejoice together. This is just one illustration of all of this. But look, the gospel calls us and Isaac demonstrates that we are called to be good neighbors even in the face of contentious realities and in as much as it is possible to live at peace with all men. And for as much as Isaac struggles in one scenario... He exceeds in another. There is a development in Isaac's character and a learning to trust in the Lord, a growing in grace, and a making progress. And the way we approach the Bible in these historical narratives and certain individuals is we ask ourselves the question, as I see them make spiritual progress, what about me? Am I someone who's making spiritual progress? And you know what? It doesn't happen all at once. You don't wake up one morning totally sanctified, never to struggle ever again. Sometimes in your progress of spiritual growth, sometimes there's regress. Sometimes there's bad moments where you wake up and say, you know what? I don't want to go to the harvest party because if people are going to come who didn't bring something, I'm not going either. Grouch. But the Christian faith is a continual advance, sometimes regressing, but always pressing forward, where though there are seasons of struggle, there is always a continual rise and constant obedience to Jesus who's remaking us in His image, or to use the language of Eugene Peterson, it's a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction, which is the path of Christian discipleship, where we are often mixed with temptations and blessings, but we, like Isaac, must learn to live by faith as a pilgrim in a strange land that is not our home, but we're learning to trust in God as we go, despite all of the circumstances around us, because we have learned to live by faith rather than by sight. That's always the lesson in the scriptures. Learning to trust in God as He says, I'm calling you to live this peculiar way in this strange land to remind you that your ultimate home isn't here, it's with Me. So that as you live a peculiar life, a pilgrim life, you're learning to live under My divine eyesight, living for Me rather than the approval of everyone around you. Because at the end of Abraham's life, Isaac's father, it was said that Abraham obeyed the Lord. And Isaac is going to have to learn that lesson as well. And so will Jacob. And so will every successive generation of covenant families, just like your family, will need to learn. Will me and my family obey the voice of the Lord living as strange people in a strange place where are oftentimes mixed with temptations and trials and struggles and we feel like we're not sure which way to go. We want it to be said of us that we have learned to trust in the Lord as the generations of faithful men and women have before us. Loved ones, the opportunities are everywhere to live as a Christian. And for every instance in which it feels Peculiar or strange, I want to remind you, that's the point. Because it's intended to distinguish you with the way you love and the way you serve and the way you give and the way you're hospitable and welcome and generous. It distinguishes you from a world that is inherently selfish and self-centered and always saying, me, mine, and not you. Christ teaches us to say, open our hands and extend welcome. Welcome. Isaac is learning that lesson, and we must as well. And by grace, may we do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the generations that have come before us that have borne witness that You are a God that is worthy of obedience and trust. And we pray that we might, in our generation, learn the same lesson so that we might always testify that You are worthy you are worthy of our love, for you have given your Son to us, that we might be redeemed and set upon a path to our home with you forever. So, Lord, bless your people, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.